0: Good morning one more time. Let's turn together please to 1 John chapter 2. We are continuing our verse by verse teaching this morning through John's first epistle. If the Bible is somewhat new to you, we are not talking about John's gospel, which is the fourth book in our New Testament, but John wrote three letters to churches likely in and around the city of Ephesus, churches over which he had had a lot of influence. We have introduced to you the main themes of this letter over the past few weeks. The first and primary theme is that John was concerned that people in these churches were going to be influenced by people outside of the churches to have wrong views of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was both fully God, and perhaps most specifically here in this cultural context, that he was fully man. He was a real human who really took on human flesh and came down to be our substitute, taking our sin and offering us his righteousness. That's the primary thing that John wants to rehearse in front of these Christians to make sure that they hold fast to that. If we get the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ wrong, everything else falls apart. Everything begins there. In fact, in so many ways, that's really the primary theme of the Scriptures, that God has come in the person of Christ. The Father sent the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to come down and bear our sins and offer us reconciliation to the Father. This is the primary theme of the Bible. There are other themes, of course, in the scriptures, including this letter, sub themes, so to speak. The two that seem to show up most prevalently here in this letter are number one, if we get the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ wrong, that he is both Savior and Master then I can really set my own course. I, I can chart my own course. I can do whatever I want. If He's not really fully God and really fully man, if He did not come on behalf of the Father to speak the words of the Father and to reconcile us to God, to renew us to worship, and just parenthetically, let us pause there for a moment. There is a design to the salvation that Jesus offers us a design to His redemptive work. There was a purpose. And that purpose was not merely that we could live in some ethereal heavenly place forever and never have to suffer anymore. Now, now that's partially true. We won't dig into all that today, but, but that's off. It, it doesn't capture the entirety of the purpose of salvation. The reason that God sent His Son to this earth to reconcile us to Himself is to renew us to worship, to restore in us His image, that we might glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. And this is why the church exists. The church exists to remind us of the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus and to point us to His glory and to His goodness, so that for a lifetime we will pursue renewal. We will grow in worship. The reason that Jesus came to this world is to renew us to worship the one true God. But it makes sense that if you get the person and work of Jesus Christ wrong, you're going to get obedience wrong. You're going to get worship wrong. And inevitably, you will worship other things, not the least of which is yourself. So John wrote to these churches to remind them of who the Lord Jesus Christ really was. He was an eyewitness to the person and work of Christ, and to call them to obey the commands of the Lord Jesus. But then secondly, another sub-theme is that What was going on here in the regions of Ephesus is that because they were getting the person and work of Christ wrong, they were not only falling short in their worship, acting as though it didn't matter whether or not they obeyed the commands of God, but they were also creating a culture that John calls hatred. Now, John tended to be pretty black and white. He tended to take themes and place them over against one another in juxtaposition. Light and darkness, obedience and disobedience, love and hatred. And at the very least, we can say this. These people in and around Ephesus who were not holding fast to the person and work of Christ, that He was fully God and fully man, and had come to reconcile us to God, were not only failing to live up to God's commands and worship him, to recognize the design of the redemption of Jesus, but they were also failing to love one another. We can say that at least. They were they were failing to love one another. And here in the section that we'll read together in just a moment, John likens it to people living in the darkness, stumbling around. And perhaps by implication, knocking into each other along the way. So just to be really clear, if we understand that Jesus really is the God-man that came down to this earth in human flesh to reconcile us to God, we will both hold fast to the truth that He has come to renew us as image bearers to worship the one true God, and we will recognize that we have been renewed to the very life of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, Holy Trinity, and therefore renewed with the capacity and desire to love. In Ephesus, in its environs, all of this was beginning to fall apart. And John wanted to write to these faithful churches and call them to hold fast to the Lord Jesus to understand that they had been rescued to worship, and they had been redeemed to love. With that in mind, let's read together 1 John chapter 2, verses 7-11. I'll read aloud while you follow along. This is the Word of God. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness, and does not know where he is going... Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And may God bless to us the reading of his word. So today we're going to discuss what John discussed. And that is this topic of light and how it relates to love. The first way that we can look at this text is with this simple thought. The realm of darkness. It's the idea of like kingdom. The realm of darkness is characterized by self-interest that damages and divides. How many of you, and I mean this to be interactive, and it might be hard for you to raise your hand to the question I'm getting ready to ask. How many of you have been through a major church controversy? Sometimes we call them church splits. How many of you have been through something like that before? Stick your hands up high so I can see them look around. Keep your hands up in the air. Look around. That, that's m- probably more than half of us. You can put your hands down. Do you remember what that felt like? When you were with people that you loved, that you had sacrificed for, that had sacrificed for you, you were friends, you had shared meals together. Remember what it was like to walk into a building the church isn't a building, it usually meets in a building, but to walk into that building with those people, the people are the church, and whereas at one time there at least had seemed a, a, an atmosphere of tranquility and union, harmony, to walk into a place like that and, and feel like you weren't at home anymore, that people were talking about you, that, that you were on one side and people that you loved were on another, that, that is an awful, awful thing. And just to bring this into clarity, John used uh, contrasts to make a point. I wanted to, to go through that little uncomfortable exercise to make this point. What we're doing here as two congregations, Berlin and North Point, is the opposite of that. We're seeking to create a union. I was together with some pastors from the Lewis Center area This past week, we get together quarterly. We are all over the map when it comes to convictions and even theology. We disagree on a whole lot of things, but we get along relatively well. Uh, This past uh, week, we got together. We had a good time together. We heard from a a local free clinic that's offering services in the community with good volunteers from our churches, and we talked about other ways we can uh, disciple our church family as well. It It was a good time together. Uh, But those pastors are aware of what our two churches are doing, and they're kind of amazed by it, because most people are accustomed to the question, I just asked you, watching churches divide, families even divide. I've been through this. The church that I grew up in was a large church, an influential church in the city in which I grew up. I watched that church not just split in half. They used to run probably close to 1,000 people. But this, to this day, that church is probably around 300 people. Now, numbers aren't the issue. We have less people than that here today. But when you watch more than half of a congregation leave, because what happened there is they divided over theology and they divided over practice, and the people who were in the middle of it left each other, but then everybody else got skittish all around them, and they took off too. And to watch that that church really just kind of fall apart. It was tragic. Relationships that that were broken during that event, some of which have never been healed, were poignant and real and, and, and tore people's hearts apart. John recognized here in the environs of Ephesus when bad theology was being taught and bad practices were arising. That these churches needed to hold fast to what they knew to be true. The Lord Jesus Christ had taken on flesh and had come down to reconcile humanity. That they might worship God anew and love each other as God had loved them. When it really comes down to it, my friends, church life is not that complex. Now, don't misunderstand difficulty with complexity. Living together in proximity with other sinners, and all of you are under that category, living in proximity with other sinners means that it's going to be difficult, right? But that doesn't mean it's necessarily complex. Think about what John is saying very simply in this letter. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh to reconcile you. Obey His commands and love each other. It's not that complex, but it's wicked hard, right? The realm of darkness is characterized by self-interest that damages and divides. Let's look together, if you don't mind, in Genesis chapters 3 and 4. You know these texts relatively well. And if you're new to the faith, these are texts that you should spend your time in because they lay groundwork for the entirety of the gospel story. In this text, we find humanity in perfect harmony with God. But it didn't stay that way. Satan, in the form of a serpent, came and deceived the man and the woman, causing them to believe that God was a killjoy. That he didn't love them. He was withholding things from them. And Satan always whispers that lie in our ears. And it comes with a hiss. And our first parents believed it. And they gave in to the lie that God was not good. That he was a killjoy. That he was withholding goodness from them. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they fell from grace. God had warned them back in Genesis chapter 2 that if they ate of that tree, if they lived independently, that they would die. Now, organically, they didn't die right away. That would take several hundred more years. People lived a long time back then. But spiritually, they died. They fell away from their harmony and union with God. You notice this in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 3. When they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why did they do this? They had never done this before. They welcomed him into their presence because he welcomed them into his. But they immediately knew because of their sin that separation had come, the essence of death. God goes on to warn them later in this text that they will struggle now in their marriage. And you see this because in chapter 4, the family unit begins to fall apart. You know this story probably pretty well. Cain and Abel, the offspring of Adam and Eve, bring sacrifices to God. Abel's sacrifice is accepted, not necessarily because it was an animal sacrifice and Not necessarily because Cain brought the sacrifice of vegetables. Cain was a farmer of the ground. He brought the thing that he attended to. The notion in this text is that Cain didn't bring his best, he brought scraps and leftovers. It was like an afterthought. And God didn't accept that sacrifice. But he accepted Abel's sacrifice because Abel gave his best. You notice in verse 4 of Genesis 4. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. He gave his best to God. God accepted this. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted because it wasn't his best. And Cain is very angry. You notice this in verse 5. Moses writes to us, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. God says to him, in verse six, why are, you ang- why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? And then he warns Cain. In verse seven, sin is crouching at the door; its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. He, he likens sin to a lion waiting in ambush to take over its prey. You know the rest of the story. Cain gives in to his anger, and he slays his brother. Cain wasn't the last of Adam and Eve's offspring that gave in to anger and to hatred of others. Later on, you see in the text, specifically in verse 18, that a man named Lamech is born. Lamech, in verse 19, takes two wives. He's a polygamist, so there's at least sin there. But then later on, something happens to Lamech. Lamech says to his two wives, in verse 23, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. By the way, guys, I don't uh, encourage you to talk to your wives that way. This is not a text that encourages good husband and wife communication. So he, he's probably a bully. We see that from the way he speaks to his wives. Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. You see what happened to Adam and Eve's offspring? They believed the lie... That God was withholding good from them. That God wasn't really love. He wasn't characterized by being beneficent and giving. And Cain had a wrong view of God like his parents. Ended up hating his brother and even killing him. Lamech was even worse. Verse 24, Lamech says, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech was incredibly self-righteous. And it doesn't take very long to get to Genesis chapter 6. Moses says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, and then in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice this phraseology. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now how long was the span between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 6. There's lots of generations missing in there. We don't know. It was a long time. What was humanity characterized by? Self-interest and sin. The realm of darkness was pervasive and it was damaging and destructive. Satan had initiated all this because Satan was evil. Satan is pure evil. Completely diabolical. We see this in our culture today, right? How is it that legislation could be proposed, Virginia, or even past New York, that a fourth trimester after birth child could be killed for seemingly small reasons or any reason at all? How is that possible? How could rational people do such a thing because Satan is diabolical. And we live in the realm of darkness with diabolical people. Do not underestimate how evil our opponent is. In 1 Peter 5, 8, the apostle tells us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Like we saw God warning Cain. This lion waiting in ambush, seeking to destroy its prey. And this is why back in 1 John chapter 2, John warns like he does. The realm of darkness is real, and it is characterized by self-interest that damages and divides. John saw this. And because they had the wrong opinion, their opponents outside of the churches had the wrong opinion of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man who had come to rescue us, they had developed the notion that they could live however they wanted. And when people live however they want, they will hurt each other. You notice this in Romans chapter 1. When God makes Himself plain and humanity recognizes there is one true God to whom they owe their worship. What has humanity generally done over human history? They have sought to suppress that truth. And you might think that God would come with earthquakes and lightning bolts and floods and, and wipe the earth out again like He did in Genesis 6-9 through nine, when the thoughts and intentions of the human heart were only evil continually. But you know what God mostly has done? He's just left humanity to themselves. And you know what happens when humanity is left to itself? It will implode. Do you know what will happen to this this notion of this merger that we are seeking to pursue if it's left to itself outside of the power of the Spirit? Do you know what will happen? If we don't embrace the gospel of the Lord Jesus and rehearse it over and over and over again, do you know what will happen? We will implode. And John writes to these beloved believers and says to them, remember, do not return to the realm of darkness. He likens it in verse 11 to stumbling around. When my wife and I went to Ethiopia to finalize the adoption of our youngest two sons, we lived in a guest house there. And we were in sort of the northern area of Addis Ababa. Addis Ababa is the capital of Ethiopia. There's 7 million people or so. Uh, Ethiopia is a developing country. It's much different than what you remember from uh, the famine and of the early and mid-'80s. It's developed quite a lot economically and culturally and so forth, but, but still a very impoverished nation. And the further you get away from the city center, the darker it is and the less... Um, infrastructure and so forth you have, and that's kind of where we were staying in the northern portion of the city. So one night we were hungry, and we wanted to go out and experience the city a little bit, and so I had found a, a restaurant on the internet. There was no description of it, but it seemingly had some food that we could actually digest. So we decided we were going we to go to this place. So we ended up walking north away from our guest house, and the further and further we walked, the darker and darker it got. We're walking through traffic, and if you've ever been in Africa, I've been in a couple of African countries and spent a good amount of time. Uh, most people are really kind. Most people you meet would give you the shirt off their back and help you, even if they don't have much. But whenever you step into a culture, into a society where there's a lot of poverty, people will take advantage of you because they're desperate. So that's rattling around in my head as a father. My two biological sons are back here in the United States. I'm leading my wife along through this dark city that we've never been in before, thinking what's going to happen to us? I've probably made a terrible mistake. Somebody's going to step out of the shadows or out of the bushes, and they're going to stab me. And you start thinking about like horrible ways of dying. Stabbing seems like a terrible way to die. And uh, we're not exactly sure where this restaurant is. Finally, we find it. The food was marginal, but we made it there safely. And we had the prospect after this marginal meal of having to walk back through the darkness. It's not like you can just call an Uber and know what you're getting. But I'll never forget that moment. Whitney was clinging very closely to me, um, probably having conversations in her head with me, knowing that it wasn't the right time to have them out loud with me. We were in some senses stumbling around in the darkness. And that's an uncomfortable way to live. You don't know where you're going. You're, you're fearful. And when people are fearful, they, they do foolish things. When you're afraid of God, you do foolish things. When you're afraid of each other because you're afraid the person next to you might harm you, you will do foolish things. And let me warn you, my friends, we're going to have to fight against that in this process of merging You're going to wonder what the person next to you that you don't know that well thinks of you. You're going to worry about the future. And if you're not careful, you or I, we, can be gripped by fear and do very foolish things. And inevitably what happens is when people are walking around in the realm of darkness is that they bump into each other because they can't really see where they're going and see what they're doing. So John uses this metaphor of darkness as an expression of the morality, or in this case, the immorality of the world. But he doesn't leave it there. He calls us to live in the light. Before we go there, I want to point out some texts to you. We'll leave that slide up on the screen for just a moment. Here are some texts that I would encourage you to spend some time meditating upon and growing in in the coming days and weeks. Galatians chapters 5 through 6, Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, Philippians chapter 2, and Colossians chapters 3 through 4. And this is just a sampling, but in all of these texts, the Apostle Paul, who wrote all of these letters, puts, again, in juxtaposition, in contrast, the works of darkness over against the works of light. The way we used to live before we belonged to Christ and the way that we are now to live when we are in him. I commend those texts to your attention, to see the contrast of who we were and who we are called to be. But John does not leave it here in 1 John chapter 2, simply telling us what the darkness is like. He calls us to live in the realm of light. If the realm of darkness is characterized by self-interest that damages and divides, by way of contrast, the realm of light is characterized by sacrificial love that heals and unifies. Turn with me, please, to Leviticus chapter 19. In this third book of the Old Testament, the third book of the Pentateuch, we will find that the call to love is not purely a new call. This is not something that Jesus invented. Look with me in Leviticus chapter 19 beginning in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, leave margins. Be merciful because I'm God, and that's how I am. Verse 11, you shall not steal, you shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall not swear by name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. It won't take time to go further, but again, a text that I commend to your attention in which God clarifies for His covenant people Israel, because I am God. And here in 1 John chapter 4, John actually says, God is Love. What God is saying to ancient Israel is, I am love, and I call you to reflect or to emulate my love. Look with me, please, in John chapter 13. Rich read this in our hearing just a bit ago, but I want to turn there briefly. This poignant, true story of the second person of the Godhead taking on human flesh and washing the dirty feet of those for whom in just a few short hours he was going to die. Simon didn't understand this. He didn't want Jesus to wash his feet. Jesus clarifies that if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter wants everything washed. Jesus says to him, the one who has bathed, like you Peter, does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. In other words, Peter, you already belong to me, but you need daily cleansing, and what I have just done proves this. Then he takes off his outer, he he washes their feet, and, and asks them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher, verse 13, and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And later on, he says to them in verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How did Jesus love them? By pouring himself out to death. By this, by this kind of sacrificial love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus calls this a new commandment. That's a little confusing because all the way back in the Mosaic law in Leviticus chapter 19, we know that God's people were always called to love each other. What does Jesus mean that this is a new commandment? He means that he came and personified love. He's amplified what God's love looks like. And he calls them to that kind of love. Not just mechanical, not just, not just giving God your scraps, but giving God and by extension your brothers and sisters, your all. And that is why in Romans 13, the Apostle Paul can say, Owe no one anything except to love each other, which is everything. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And of course, the Lord Jesus clarifies this for us in Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test and teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. So what's the ethic of any commandment that God has ever given? To love. I'm going to put the list back in front of you from Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Turn with me please to Galatians chapter 5. Again, not only do these texts point us away from what we used to be, they point us to how we should be. What happens whenever we are left to ourselves, we will implode. How do we push back against this? How do we push back against Galatians 5.19, the works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality? Those seem really bad, things that really bad people do. But notice verse 20, idolatry. Who in here today is not an idolater, worshiping things other than God? then he goes to sorcery. I hope none of you are sorcerers. But then he talks about enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries and dissensions and divisions, things that all of us have been and will again be complicit in. How do we turn back from this according to to Paul by walking in the Spirit? and, And what kind of fruit does the Spirit produce? Verse 22, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And notice the end of verse 23, against such things there is no law. We are free in Christ, but we are freed to love. And so my brothers and sisters, the realm of darkness is characterized by self-interest that damages and divides. And John knew this. And he wrote to these churches to hold fast to Jesus and remember how Jesus had loved. Jesus laid down His life set aside his rights for the good of another. How will this merger work if we are willing to set aside our rights and to live sacrificially? I watch you doing this. I see you living in the light. So let me be specific. I watch Rich Hartzell live in the light when he comes to my son's cross-country meets that he had barely met a couple of weeks before. You know what that communicated to my family a couple of months into this merger process when I barely knew that guy? It communicated to my family that even my children were noticed. Do you know how much that made my family feel loved? I have watched you do this in other specific ways. One of the, my most favorite things that has happened over the past several months as our church families have come together is that Marty and Lindsay Gray, their little daughter, Piper, who is 10, has become pen pals with Hope Negley. I love that. And Wednesday night after our small group, uh, Piper, as she often does, comes up and will talk to me about what's going on in her life. She's so sweet. And then as soon as she finished with me, she went and she just stood next to Hope. Hope doesn't like to talk a lot but Piper just was in her space and in her presence. I love to see that. I've watched you sacrifice for each other, preparing meals for people you don't know that well yet, going and visiting in the hospital people that you don't know that well yet. And the examples abound on and on. I'm watching you do this. And just because I didn't mention the specific thing that you've done that was loving, you're going to have to choose to not take offense at that. Perhaps the clearest expression that I'm watching uh, right now is our worship team. Artists are finicky people. And if you're an artist, I am just really sorry. But it's true. Artists uh, approach the world in a bit of a different way than some of the rest of us. And sometimes they can get pretty upset at each other hypothetically. (laughs) But I have loved watching Todd lead this newly combined worship team. He sends out emails that are copied to me on a weekly basis, where he encourages uh, the members, and not always just talking about music, but pointing out ways they can pray for each other. If you come on a Thursday night, and I'm sure you're welcome to come if you want to sit in the pews and just watch, they pray together, they talk to each other, they're learning to love each other. Our churches have different styles of worship, different approaches to worship. Our services are run a little bit differently. And Todd has done an amazing job of uniting people together so that we can come together on Sundays and be united. You know why he's doing that? He's not getting paid to do that unless some money's hidden in a slush fund somewhere. I don't think so. He's doing that because he loves you. And so Todd, and for the rest of you, and those, of course, I didn't mention— the reason that this merger is working and hopefully coming to an end soon is because you're learning to live this way. You're, you're laying down your rights. You're leveraging your resources for each other. So rich and poor, busy and unbusy, working and retired, grandparents and parents and single people, we all have the responsibility to lay our rights down for the good of another. And you know what happens when a community is characterized by that, by, by sacrificial love? People are healed. There are a lot of people sitting here today who have been through tragic experiences in their lives, far worse than church splits, abuse and abandonment and being left alone. But you know what happens when a community is characterized holistically by sacrificial love? People heal. People get jaded here in this world. They become cynical, believing that no one is loving, no one is lovely, and this world is a dangerous place. And everywhere they look, something is waiting in ambush to take them over. But when we live in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has laid down his life for us and set aside his rights for us and learn to live that way together, we don't have to be afraid. And when a community loves like that, everybody is taken care of. And such a community is characterized by healing and unity. And that's the kind of community I want to be part of, and I think you do too. So we all have a role to play. Let us hold fast to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We are reminded that God has come down to us and loved us. May we obey his commands, and in particular today, this command to love sacrificially. And may this community be characterized by healing and unity for the glory of God and the joy of many. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take your word, apply it to our minds and hearts. We recognize that left to ourselves, we are in great danger. But you have led us to the kingdom of light. It is already breaking in. And I pray that this community will be characterized by love and by unity. So remind us as we walk away what we have heard. Transform us once again in the ways that we need. And we pray this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and for our mutual joy. Amen.